Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Mark, we have a stack, Waddy. Excellent. I'm always up for them. This Game one, of pheasant. This one comes from Scotland, from Kenny in Scotland. It's got a special Scottish flavour to it. Actually. Okay. And it's it's um, shows taking place this year at the Edinburgh Fringe. Okay. Right? They've all got kind of rib-tickling titles, yes? Yeah. You, you've got to... Spot which one of these seven is not a real one. Okay. Yep. Are you ready? Here we go. Number Try one. Me. Number one. Why I stuck a flare up my ass for England. <laughs> Number two. Okay. Pablo Escobar doesn't need a second job. You ready? Yeah. Number okay. Number three, we're looking for the one that's made up again. Number three, in the court of the Crimson Ting, the history of prog rock in a reggae style. <laughs> number number four. Number four. That's really funny. A shark ate my penis, a history of boys like me. Number five. Bald Man Sings Rihanna. Bald Man Sings Rihanna. Oh, my God. Number six. Away Sissy. Gender Queer Drag Show. <laughs> and number seven. Rosie Sings My Vagina's Priceless. Okay. So those are the seven, Mark. All shows taking place at this year's Edinburgh Fringe. Apart from one, which is oh invented. my lord, so, that's just—it's impossible, isn't it? And I speak as a veteran of the of the, of the Edinburgh Fringe, Fringe, having gone to see my son in a play once, and there were more people on stage than in the audience. No disrespect to him—a massively good show, but uh, it's a tough old gig. Uh, I thought Rosie, the convention was that members of the of the acting fraternity who might be listening to this could could um, straighten this out for me. 
I always thought the theatrical convention was if there are more of you on stage than there are in the audience, you're allowed not to go on. Oh, I right. Was, okay. I always thought that was the case. I may be completely wrong. Anyway, go on. Maybe. Well, they did very bravely and and uh, and, uh, and triumphed. Okay, um, good. Gosh, Rosie says my vagina is priceless. That is That, I feel, is real. That I'm saying is probably a Sarah Pascoe show. It is. It's join Rosie on a musically thrilling adventure. She reminds you that Google is not a doctor and justifies her own urinary incontinence. A fantastically, <laughs> a fantastically bold, brave, and fun comedy. Fringebiscuit.co.uk. Oh, okay, moving on. Okay, okay. I think Oasis is real. Uh, the genderqueer drag show. I'm, I just got a feeling about it. I think Oasis. Don't look back in anger, babes. Slip yeah. and slide inside a rock and roll fantasy party of joy, chaos, and catharsis as genderqueer drag clowns oasis invite you into their mad ferret, monobrowed imagination. Mad a gay ferret. old time, says Noel. Okay, carry on. That's very, very good. Um, Baldman sings Rihanna. I, again, that just seems authentic to me. It's precisely the kind of thing that some comedian might be doing. Ever heard a uh, bald man sing Rihanna? Scottish baldy Gary is fresh from performing at fringes across the world. Recommended for anyone who wants to laugh. Pelican Magazine. Good. Australia. Good. I'm doing all right here. You are um, doing well. I still think I know the right answer. Okay. Another I think is real is a shark ate my penis. I don't know why. I th- I'm thinking Rod Gilbert or somebody. Is it real? It's a one-person musical about trans yep. men throughout history. Carry on. Go on. That's good. The Pablo Escobar... Is also real. I think why I stuck a candle up my ass, a flare up my ass for England is bound to be because it's a kind of just a one of those kind of um, Twitter meme kind of uh, you know statements about the, the the nation, isn't it? That somebody would use for topical comedy. Dave, the one that's made up, I think, is in the court of the Crimson Ting, and just because it's just. So cute and so funny, and nobody would be doing King Crimson in a reggae style. Am I right? Absolutely right. <laughs> oh in the court of the Crimson Tink, that is simply brilliant. <laughs> what well, a superb. Well done, for, well done to Kenny and Scotland for, uh, for sending that through. Obviously, Kenny, we love that. We're, we're always Jesus. open to uh, suggestions for further further stat bodies. If you've That's got really, them. really good. If you've got them, please send them in. Talking of amusing things, I just sent Mark a um, thing that very much amused me. I was looking at Elton John's appearance as a guest star on the Monkham on Wise Christmas show from 1976 which is just a thing of beauty, it struck me. It's such an old-school, more wise thing where all we're going to do is we're going to get on somebody unlikely as a guest star who's going to be on also somebody piano. really famous. They're pretending <laughs> they don't know who they are. That's the gag, isn't it? <laughs> That's the gag. And, you know, they, they, it's just Eric and Ernie at their purest and best. You know, it's the two they're of them. Fantastic. Shall we do a yeah, – let's do a song. Where's the pianist? And on comes wearing, obviously, Watford scarf and hat, Elton John, wearing, mark you, I think, a pair of very high stack heel boots, because he appears to be taller than Malcolm and Wise. Yes, he does. I don't think he is in real life at all. And uh, takes off his coat and then uh, sits down at the piano. And they just say, you know, I'm Eric, this is Ernie. 
And what's your name? It says I'm called Elton John. Is it Elton John? See, what does Eric do? Something sounds like a turn off on the M1. <laughs> turn left in Elton John. And then off past Peterborough. It's just beautiful. Because the, the intriguing thing about, if you read anything about Morecambe and Wise, they, they, they would, they would start with very little material. You know, there's hardly anything in that sketch at all. There's hardly any material at all. And yet, so do you think were, a lot of that's improvised? No, they rehearse it like mad. Yeah, they yeah, really think. rehearsed really hard. They yeah. worried about things not working, and so you know the rehearsal just uh, it shows in just the quality of the business. But it's the spareness of the thing. God, it's a beautiful. It's so beautiful. Also, Eric is such a kind of physical comedian as well. Yeah. It? But well, my favourite bit was he tries in a really relaxed way to to jump up and sit on the upright piano and just kind of misses, and then kind of tries to pretend he kind of didn't do it until he kind of leans against it. Yeah. And there's another line which I think he might have just thrown in actually, where 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 uh, Ernie says something like, "What song song are you going to do? Is it the old soft shoe?" He said, "Oh, my mother would love it. She'd be in tears." She said, "If she were here." I said, "Why?" He says, "She can't stand me." <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Oh, it's a beautiful thing to see. Because it's an amazing thing that Elton, you know, has just finished his allegedly final tour. How many years later? You don't. Know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, to see, to to think, to be reminded of the fact that Elton John encompasses the era of you know of um, Eric and Ernie, and I was also that that then led me via YouTube serendipity to look at Elton duetting on Don't Go Breaking My Heart at the British Comedy Awards in, I think, 2000 with who? Go on, Mark. Not, not Kiki D. So when 2000? 2000, God damn 2000, 2000. Oh, my Lord. Um, well, I'm going to tell you the answer. Alan Partridge. No. <laughs> It's all there I on YouTube. I've got that. In a but, that years. So, but, but it's amazing in all sorts of ways, you know, that it reminds me of the fact that Alan Partridge was invented more than 23 years yeah. ago. <laughs> it's, the, it's the kind of um, lingevity of all this stuff. I noticed, which also brings me completely seamlessly <laughs> to, I was looking, looking on Twitter today, there was uh, uh, Simon Raymond from, uh, you know, from the, the Cotter Twins. Twins. Yeah, posted that, that um, I can't remember what, what made him do it, but he said, effectively, the Cocteau Twins, who ceased operations on, I think, 1997, he said. So that's a long, long old time ago. He says they are more popular now than ever before. I'm sure. And I'm sure he's absolutely I totally right. I believe that. Uh, and and I, would, I would almost add, Simon, who isn't? <laughs> that that everybody gets more popular after a long period of time, don't they? Because the audience just grows. Just grows and grows and grows. With, with, time, with time. And in that case, a lot of the people who like them first time around probably still love them. You know, yeah. so it's just a whole new generation, isn't it? And they've been joined by their, their children or whatever, or people who like totally different things. I don't know. But uh, it, I, I thought it doesn't surprise me at all that you should, should say that. And I think you could say it about, about lots and lots of groups. Talking to people who've been going for a long time, 
Is Bob Dylan retiring, Mark? Is this story that's well, been going Well, there's a story this morning, wasn't there, that Dylan... Also, I didn't know. Did you know that he owned that huge property in, in, in Scotland? I didn't. It's now on the market. You can buy it. And I'm sure there's an increased value in the fact that Bob Dylan once kind of lived there. But he apparently went to Scotland for about two weeks a year for a kind of holiday. Hence the song The Highlands, et cetera, et cetera. I suppose and, you know, so. Just I very fond so. of the place. Massive, massive estate. Um Real stately home, actually, with kind of manicured grounds. So I had no idea that for two weeks a year he'd been rattling around, not doing any welding, presumably, mooching about. I think the, <laughs> way, the, the rain will put your welding torch out up there, won't it, really? Yeah. But, yeah, and the, the suggestion is that, that the last date on the 2024, um, you know, never-ending tour will be his last, uh, and that he won't tour after 2024, which wouldn't surprise me at all. But I'm astonished he's kept going this long. But why wouldn't you? So uh, that made me think about loads of things. Uh, that Bob Dylan has, has apparently been going to Scotland regularly for a few years, for spend a couple of couple of weeks. Probably probably worked out how to avoid the midges season, <laughs> which is which is the key. Although with uh, with Bob Dylan's you may kind want of hood, to rub the net on his hoodies, <laughs> he'd be perfectly at home with the with the midge net, wouldn't he? Yeah, he would. Bob Dylan would be not a problem at all. Yeah, um, increased anonymity. Absolutely. Imagine imagine you're about to bag a Monroe somewhere up in the. So you get to the top. There's a guy in a hoodie, and you think, "Hang on, is that Bob Dylan? Is that the spokesman for a generation?" I tell you, the thing it made me think. It made me realise that something has disappeared from our life in the last twenty-three years, actually, Mark, uh, which used to be a real, a real staple part of the way that we kept in touch with the comings and goings of popular entertainment. And you know what it was? It was the airport arrival photograph. There used to be a posse of photographers who were permanently stationed at Heathrow Airport. And their job was to... To get Rod Stewart with his arm around the latest blonde. Absolutely. In a pair of dark glasses... Looking, it's that combination of looking thrilled that he's been trying, trying to suppress the look that he's been thrilled he's been met by photographers. Could be worse not to be, but also look like he's above it all and in a rush and can't stop. You'd also get somebody like Pete, uh, somebody like David Niven, you know, trying on a porter's hat or something. Yeah, 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 Just yeah. you know, somebody who knew the game. Anyway, the point is, you always knew when celebs were going in and out of the country because they had their photograph taken as they came in. And as they went out, doesn't happen anymore. Because how do they all get around? Private jets. Private jets. <laughs> you know, and therefore, we, 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 our attention is no longer drawn to the fact that they're zipping across the around the you know across the world for for coffee. You know, that was the thing. That was the bit of evidence that intrigued me in the Kevin Spacey trial that Elton John gave evidence. You know, last week that we remembered uh, Kevin coming to our benefit because he arrived by private jet private, private jet and i couldn't help thinking now kevin spacey very success, successful actor before you know the recent unpleasantness and so forth but you don't think of him as being like tom cruise do you you don't think of him as being somebody who just has a private jet standing by at all all hours of the day and night do you or maybe you do well, um, I guess he probably would have hired it for a one-off for, the, for that. But, I mean, it also just reminds you that being Kevin Spacey at that time and being, you know, an airport and not a commercial flight was probably really hard work. 
you probably were just pestered by people. Oh, but the, you know, the fact is all these people get everywhere by private jet. And yeah. I would imagine Bob Dylan is no exception. Yeah. So he probably, probably flies into Inverness Airport on a regular basis, you know. Actually, that's true because if he didn't, we'd, we'd kind of know about You'd it. You'd know we? about You'd it. Know. That's my point. You, you would. would know. Yeah. They have, they have Seen at the baggage arrival carousel at Glasgow. You know? Nobody does that anymore. No, Nobody don't. does that. Well, anybody famous is kind of, you know, they're invisible. Anybody yeah. really famous, they move about invisibly. So you, do you think that Bob Dylan is going to stop at the end of uh, the so-called never-ending tour? Um, not well, not touring, no. Like Elton John. Elton John is only stopping touring, but he's, he's, he's going to yeah. stop. He won't stop performing. So he won't. So he might stop touring. Sorry, but he won't stop performing. I'm sure because it's just in his blood, isn't it? I mean, he just, I suppose so. How can you adjust to a life without it? You know. I suppose so. I was thinking when I was reading about the um, the actors and writers strikes in Hollywood, and I was thinking, you know, we have a vision of people being on strike, you know, which is kind of based on, you know, the old industrial world, you know, where where the person didn't go down the pit or didn't go to the docks or whatever, stayed at home, you know. And you think to yourself, if actors go on strike, what difference does it make to most actors? Because most actors, no disrespect, are not working. Arresting. Well, They're in between it's jobs. It's a fact. They're it's waiting fact, for the agent to ring them. And similarly, although not quite the same, but, you know, similar, curious thing, writers, if what do writers spend most of their do time doing? And I know this because I am one, okay? They spend most of their time postponing writing. Yeah, because it's you know hard I mean? work. Because it's, <laughs> it's really, really tough. So what difference does it make, really? You know, because if they had a good idea, you're going to tell me they're not going to write it down on a bit of paper. I think they are, aren't they? You know what I mean? They're not going to stop doing anything for the duration of the strike and then, and then no. suddenly turn on their, you know, whatever, whatever creative engine they have going there. It's, it's going to be very interesting. I think I'll send you the, the interview with Barry, the Barry Diller. Diller interview. Barry it's Diller. Really interesting. Hollywood bigwig. Very experienced person, Barry Diller. And because his main yeah. point was if they don't resolve it soon, real yeah. problems. Because if they don't Absolutely. resolve I mean, he made some really good points. One was that COVID had destroyed, you know, the, the whole theatre business, the cinema, you know, uh, yep. uh, uptake. And that then people had invested into streaming and invested very unwisely and lost a load of money. And if it's delayed beyond, he thinks, was it September the 1st? Then there's a very strong chance that a load of new TV programs would not be made next year, and therefore all the revenues they'd be expecting. I mean, that would just be catastrophic, wouldn't it? We'd well, be on permanent repeats. It's um, it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, if I, you know, you've got the cinema side of it, and and I know that they're all it, the sky is black with hats in the last week because Oppenheimer and uh, Barbie are very Barbie and opened very good, very good numbers apparently. But apparently before that, I read that UK box office was down 7% on the previous year. Now, if you consider that the previous year was still coming out of COVID. Yeah. That is catastrophic. You know what I mean? And and you got small chains just turning well, their Well, to be honest, haven't you been to the cinema less? I haven't been at all. I mean, you know, I haven't been, I haven't been for ages. And I mean, it's the thing that once people get out in the habit of, I don't think they they reacquire it. 
But uh, but then the streaming thing, fortunes have been poured into streaming over the last 10 years in an effort to get market share, in an effort to make sure that your your streaming service is one of the ones that survives the inevitable shakeout that's going to take place because at the moment there's like six of them or something, or probably more, and there can't be six of them going forward. There's probably going to be two. And so they're all just chucking money at the problem at the moment, more productions, more stuff in order to get more subscribers. If people just cancel their subscriptions, which they can do really quickly, these, you know, th- these businesses just will turn away and the investors will think, no, I'm going to invest in something else, actually. Um, so I think, I think Barry Della's point that if they don't sort it out quickly, if this goes into a, into a long standoff, it could be very nasty indeed. It's probably, it's probably really true, you know. I think that's absolutely true. Um, he had a very fanciful suggestion at one point. He said he pointed out that the, the, the top 10 actors get paid far more than, earn far more than the, top 10 film executives and they should all voluntarily take a 25% pay cut. Well, uh, he, sa- he said mean, that, you know, because a lot of the argument is, oh, look, the studio chiefs make a fortune, which I'm sure they do. But the counter-argument is the big movie stars make a fortune. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, and it makes no sense whatsoever, but they do. Although they used to get paid a fortune. You used to pay Tom Cruise a fortune to be in your film because it opened it. it, it you could be sure that people would flock to the box office when it opened. And I'm sure that's probably true, but, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't go on forever, you know. Um, it's going to be... It's does that be, matter so much, the opening weekend? It doesn't really, does it? Well, I think it probably does if you've got a, if you've got a Barbie or an Oppenheimer. Um, but um, streaming is totally, totally different business, isn't it? It works in totally different ways. Have you seen the Barbie ads? No. Fantastic! We just passed one coming back from our holes. There's a huge billboard on the North Circular, and it's just a huge pink billboard. And in the bottom right-hand corner, it just says July the 21st. There's nothing on it; just the colour pink. Yeah, that's good, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's really very good. good. So, tell me, Mark, if there were no new TV dramas for the next year, would it bother you? Well, if you thought I could go back and watch the whole of Seinfeld or Cheers or something, I don't or, know. Or a million and one other or things. Or a million and one other things, probably not. Or, uh, you know, um, I, I, not really, no, because there's just so much I haven't seen. This is it. We've only just started, started watching Succession, so that's how behind we are. And you're, what, are you watching the first one? First, yeah, for, it's the first series. We just so there's five the to go? On I, know, I know, I know, I know. That's the rest of the- and that's the, the summer sorted. And that's the same thing. On a very happy note, God is dispiriting stuff. That's the same thing that applies to, you know, Sopranos and, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I've, I've never watched Breaking Bad. Never done it. Well, Breaking Bad, I think you'd love it. It's fantastic. I mean, I'm sure it's, it's not the, the best point. of all of them. Mark, that's not the point. That's not the point. The point is we have more than we would ever have the lifetime yeah. to watch. That's the issue. And... Uh, this didn't apply 20 years ago at all. You know, there wasn't that much. Now there is. It's yeah. bound to make a huge difference. So anyway, in more industrial relations news next week. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So, Mark, do you get around to watching the hypnosis documentary? I've watched it. I've watched it. Squaring the Circle. 
What a great title. What a great title that is, the idea of putting a a square record sleeve on an album. And it's the new film by, yeah, by Anton Corbin and uh, is, I think, in cinemas now. In fact, I I watched it on Amazon, actually. And uh, really enjoyed it. It's the story, yes, the story of hypnosis, which you were involved in. We talked about that in a moment. Storm Thorgerson and Poe Powell, who did uh, the Led Zeppelin and Wings and Tennessee Sea and uh, the XCC, Trees, Pink Floyd, all those fantastic, memorable uh, sleeves and uh, and what it, it makes you think what an amazing advance that was that only minutes beforehand the idea of a record sleeve wasn't terribly important was it it was you know it was the beach boys in a petting zoo for pet sounds you know and suddenly they transformed it and gave it just gave that whole new dimension to the idea that rock music had hidden depths and qualities and resonances you know and uh, I thought it was really, really interesting. And there's a there's one line that summed it up for me, Dave. It summed up the whole thing, where they're talking about uh, Poe Powell says that uh, he says to his assistant, he says, "I need a sheep, a psychiatrist couch, a vet, and a ticket to Hawaii." And that is in order to film a concert that he's cooked up for a 10 cc album called, I think, "Look Here," which. It's going to be, yeah, a sheep on a psychiatrist's couch in the surf on a beach in Hawaii. I mean, there is absolutely no reason to do this and go to Hawaii. And according to him, he had to take the vet with him and the vet had to inject the sheep with Valium to keep it calm or else it wouldn't be photographed. And at the end of all this, they they reduce the picture to about three inches square, don't they? And <laughs> stick it on the sleeve. So it's absolutely unbelievable. And it just reminds you of the of the whole excess of the time the limitless budgets there's a story where they do a sleeve for uh paul mccartney in wings Great paul mccartney has a statue and he wants it to be photographed on everest so they go to everest with no, the statue they don't, they don't go to everest no first of all it was, was going it to be everest, the alps and then he wanted mont blanc and uh, it ended up on an alp it was an alp wasn't it, it an alp via helicopter that's right to get, to get down to get down to the uh, the top of the top of the mountain, and went to incredible you know trouble and expense and discomfort to do it, and then went back and showed McCartney it, and McCartney said, "Well, you could have done that in the studio," which of course is true. Yes, they could, but then again, he was paying for it, and why wouldn't Absolutely. they go if they could? Yeah, yeah. You know? Because that's the interesting thing to me about there were loads of interesting things about the story that they. Um, you know, in the in the in the heyday of hypnosis, which is you know mainly the latter half of the seventies, I suppose. If you wanted an image of two men shaking hands, and one of them's on fire, you had to set him on fire. You had to go, you had to find somebody and set them on fire, and therefore you could only you could only you could only do it at at a studio in Hollywood where there were the two people. Two stunt men in the world, most used to you know dealing with with fire, and uh, and you know you, you had to you had to take a, a bunch of snaps while it while it was going on, you know, because everything had to be done in the real world. That's the thing that's well, that, amazing. That's the thing with animals, isn't it? It's the very famous one. You know, animals that they blow up the pig. I can't believe it. I think the Battersea Power Station was probably empty at the time. But by the same token, apparently without any clearance or permission. Oh, I, no! I think I think they, they had, I think they had permission, but they they ended up with uh, with this is animals, of course, with the pig, you know, hovering yeah. above Battersea Power Station, and they had to fudge it slightly because the 
they did it on more than one day because first of all the, the pig floated away and they, they um, couldn't get it inflated sufficiently could they and then the day when they managed to get the pig in the right place the sky wasn't as good as it had been the previous day so so what you see is a combination of the two but it's a collage in the end isn't it's it? a so, collage so what he's saying it? is there was absolutely no reason to have done that but the point is at the time there was the money and also the publicity wasn't there you know they got loads of publicity I, about it you see i i i think i don't even think it was that do you know what i think it was because i was involved in this a bit you know because i i i wrote the kind of first outline for this film you know and um and when you do these things you all you don't expect it all to be in the film and that's fair enough you know because they've got to they got to make decisions of all of all kinds of decisions but the, one of the things i wanted them to do i suggested this is whenever you get people talking about lps you know whether you've got paul mccartney as they have and Roger Waters and Dave Gilmore and Graham Goldman and Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and all these people. What I think you ought to do is interview them while they're handling the LP. Yes. It should be in their hands. Because, yeah, it because that's what people have forgotten about. The physical tactile It was the physical thing. Yeah. Now, nowadays, people revere albums more than ever, and album covers more than ever before. But they didn't tend to do this at something of a distance, you know. <laughs> they all stick it in a little in a little holder saying, now playing, you know, as if yeah. they're a rather pretentious record shop. And, you know, and it wasn't like that back then. And so this was the, the record, you know, the magical time of the LP was when the music business was a branch of what you might call the packaged goods business. It was. Because yeah. here was a thing which you went and you saw it in a shop window and you went and looked in the racks and you held it and then you took it to the took it to the counter and they might even, you know, if it was an old-fashioned thing, they might get the record off the back shelf and then stick it in your cover, put it in a bag, Hand it to you. You read every square inch of it on the bus. You went home on the train or the bus, and you read every square inch of it. And everybody else on the bus or in the train carriage stopped what they were doing and looked at what you had, because it was that powerful. And then when you went home, you listened to the record with the thing in your hands. And in the extreme cases of of some of hypnosis stuff, and I'm thinking particularly, I think, Wish You Were Here, was initially issued, they'd done the picture of the two men, one on fire, shaking hands and so forth, and then it was put inside a black shrink wrap shroud over which there was a little sticker reassuring you it was Pink Floyd. And therefore, the first thing you had to do when you bought that record, when you paid your... £4.50 or whatever it was, might have been a fiver at that point. No, I don't think it was. I think it was £3.75. Anyway, whatever you paid, and it was a lot of money, the first thing you did when you took it home was destroy it. Because you took Decrease that... Decrease its value. That <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that was a kind of ceremony. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, 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 people didn't... They didn't put these things in glass cases. They interacted with them, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I thought, 
this would be really good if while you were interviewing so-and-so, they were doing this. They were taking it apart. Of course, you can't do that nowadays because there are so few and they're so valuable nowadays that nobody would have the budget to do that, no, I, I, I would suppose. You know, so I was really interested in that side of it. And, uh, and the other thing I was really interested in was the, was the relationship between the people uh, who were hypnosis, who were primarily Poe. As you they say, were like but, a band, weren't they? Didn't they were they? like a band, they were just, just like, like a band. band. There were two of them. They're, they were such different characters. Really, one really though. cared about money. One didn't care about money at all, and um, one was polite and diplomatic, and the other, and the other was wasn't. Really, really uh, curmudgeonly and rude, <laughs> actually. In a oh yeah. And then they fell, the terrible thing was that they fell. I'd forgotten this that they fell out. It was just at the point where. You know, I suppose punk rock to some extent, various other things, made them look redundant. Nobody wanted to spend money on that kind of packaging. That was all associated with a, a different time in kind of rock history. And so they tried to go, I think unsuccessfully, didn't they, into kind of filmmaking, into video making, and they got into debt. And uh, and Poe and, and Storm just had a disagreement about paying off a debt and didn't speak for 12 years. Yeah, there you go. That was so sad. Absolutely and they were absolutely terrible. inseparable best pals, weren't they? All that stuff about the early days of them to being 16, 17, living in a little house with the Pink Floyd at the early early stage is really fascinating, I think. And also the spontaneity of it. There's a lovely bit with the Atom Heart mother cover, which I always really loved, actually. I was mystified by that when it came out. And they just say, what are we going to do? And somebody has the idea that, I think it's David Gilmore, says, why don't we have something that's completely meaningless? Yeah, he says, well, what about a photograph of a cow? And so Poe gets into a car, doesn't he? He drives he goes to, out he goes of to see his He goes to see his mother who lives in Potter's Bar. Potter's just Bar. Right from where on I'm. the way to Potter's Bar, he says, I will stop when I see the first cow. Yeah. Gets out, jumps over the fence, photographs the cow, photographs some other ones for the back, gets in the car, drives home, and there it is. And even the, the irony, of course, that that then became somehow meaningful. You know, it wasn't meaningless at all. What was the cow? You know, the cow became symbolic of, you know, of... Uh, of I don't know people, whatever people <laughs> were trying to work out it was it was it was meant to mean. That was fantastic. No, it's an extraordinary tale, and of course you know they there was a kind of deathbed reconciliation between uh, Roger Waters and uh, and Storm. Um, you know because they hadn't spoken for years because they fell out over the credit for animals because the cover of animals was Roger Waters' idea. Yeah. Um, executed by the rest of them, but it was Roger Waters' idea. And he didn't like the idea that when he saw the first proof, it said art direction, hypnosis, and he thought they didn't art direct this. And there was a terrible falling out over that. Because it's yet another classic case. It's like what I was just saying about court Edwards. That you know the stuff they did when they were like twenty three, twenty four, never thought about it at all. Is the stuff that we're still talking about? Yeah, no. fifty years later, you know? I know. And there's 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 films made about it, you know, and there's exhibitions devoted to it. And one thing that struck me was that was that the value of <clears throat> of a photograph has completely been changed. It, photographs do not have the same impact because in your subconscious you're always thinking that they've been modified. Yeah. Don't you think? 
Yeah. But occasionally, there was a picture recently of Johnny Bairstow carrying off a Just Stop Oil protester. Yeah, yeah. And it was just one of those brilliant moments, and the guy's kind of punching the air, and Bairstow's got him under his arm, basically. It was just very, very funny, and just a, just a particular moment captured. But nowadays, if you look at any picture, there's always that faint suspicion that it could have been modified. But at the time, you looked at those pictures, and you knew that they were real, didn't you? Yeah. Well, I think that's been that's been lost. That's a shame, really. And it's also, if you wanted to get any effect of any kind, if you wanted to do it nowadays, well, you could do it with an Instagram filter. Yeah, you can do it on, a, on an iPhone. Easiest exactly. thing in the world. Those things used to involve long nights in the dark room. <laughs> you know, on the on the which premise is lots of, of in the film because but, Anton, of course, is a photographer and he's fascinated by all that yeah, technicality. Yeah. And I love that. There's a whole section about the making of uh, Houses of the Holy that Led Zeppelin sleeve, which he really couldn't do now actually uh, at Giant's Causeway, yeah. and they go out there and the weather for about three or four days is so bad that they can't really shoot and no, they don't no. get the light right. And eventually, they decide to do it in black and white, and then they cut up the pictures as a collage and reassemble them with the little children crawling over the rocks, and then hand tint them. And uh, that's the only way they can make it work, you know. And I love yeah. all that kind of detail. Just so much went into it. And those pictures really made a difference to the sales of those records. They just did. You know, you imagine those records now with just a kind of prosaic shot of band on cover. Would have been completely different. Yeah, yeah. So there's the film. Was it called Square in the cir Circle? Out now. And Roger Waters re-recording Dark Side of the Moon. Just what the world's looking for. Just what the world's looking for. Have you seen that clip? I haven't seen the clip. No, it came what's up the clip? Well, there's a clip of uh, the song Money. And oh, yes. Oh, my God. I was watching it this morning. It's just extraordinary. The whole, his whole re-recording and reinterpretation of Dark Side of the Moon is coming out, I think, in early October. But he posted this morning, this is uh, on the Friday the 21st, he posted a, uh, a, an official video for, for Money. And it features a kind of slavering dog and it's kind of spoken word. It's him kind of, you know, uh, reciting the original lyrics with a whole new section in the middle, which starts off with him saying, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, which is, that's one for the teenagers. And then going to this whole thing about uh, welcome to the underworld. And it's this sort of fat toad-like uh, character, this capitalist sitting on a stool like a sumo wrestler, terrorising some sort of skinny, pale kid, while a cloven-hoofed devil with a briefcase holding a Faustian pact, presumably uh, involving huge quantities of cash, is sitting beside them. And it's just one of those things that kind of, it's like, a, it's like a Ralph Steadman cartoon. It made me just think, oh, my God, Roger Waters. He was, Dave, he was sceptical then. He is the bitterest and most cynical man. He is, isn't he? His idea that after 50 years, you know, what, what they need is, is his new perspective gleaned from his own life experience and philosophy and the wisdom of age. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And, uh, and actually, I mean, really, it, it, I, he feels whatever message that they, they, they put out then still hasn't been fully understood. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my Lord. Okay. Do we need it? I don't know. We should find out. Anyway. We've been running over the last couple of weeks um, some wonderful old clips. We've been talking about some wonderful old clips we found on YouTube or people have sent them in, um, what you might call slice-of-life documentaries made in the past, usually by news programs, about bands who were up-and-comers who never never came, did they really? No, they never, they never made. Otherwise, it would be pointless. <laughs> that's, that's the pathos that makes it so attractive. And we've been, uh, you know, richly entertained by looking at the last few weeks. What do you have? Punch, who came from Bradford and attempted to make it on um, Opportunity Knocks. Uh, Rainia. <laughs> Is it Rainier? Yes, like a, a prog band. A prog band who are on, on Transatlantic. Gem Stone, a friend of the pod, has sent through one. We, we're delighted if anybody finds yeah, they're so, they're examples because they're brilliant. And this is about a band. What's the name of the band? They're Bob? called the Mike Stewart Span. The Mike Stewart. What a weird name. But as we'll come to later, of course, they changed their name to something vogue <laughs> more We'll come, come to that. Later. To, we'll come but, to no, this just, is 19, so 1968. Yeah. 1968, this is a, a documentary made by... I think BBC in the in the south of England. I think probably yeah. based in Brighton because because the band are based in Brighton, aren't they? Yeah, you know, they so are. There's a lot of kind of local interest in them, and uh, it's a fascinating little uh, vignette here because you're catching a band just at the moment when every group who had previously worn a blazer and slacks suddenly. As, as one, all decided they shouldn't wear a blazer and slacks any longer. And they previously had a name that was kind of vodish and voguish and moddy, and suddenly they decided that they didn't need that any, any longer. Is that, is that the case? Precisely that. You see, this is, and, you know, if you look at this film, you can see it in operation. This is the greatest cultural revolution in the history of popular music. Because this all happened in a six-month period, didn't it, Mark? You and I remember. We're old enough to remember. This is like, you know, think the Zoop Money Big Roll Band featuring Andy Summers at the police, who overnight became Dan Talian's chariot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Think Simon Simon Dupree Dupree and the Big big Sound became became Gentle Giants. I know. And these guys are so brilliant. They're the Mike Stewart span. And just in a moment of, and they've gone through all this stuff. They've, they've, they've got the new manager and they've played all these gigs. They're trying to get press. 
And then they get the sales of their new single, don't they? And they tell you how much it sold. And I think the, the number of singles sold was 264 copies. And I'm and sure that was crisis, an exaggeration. That yeah, was an exaggeration. They sacked the manager and he says, just almost as an, as kind of under his breath, he was, of course, we changed the name of the band now. We're called Leviathan. You think this is absolutely fantastic. So Classic. they've become Leviathan. And somehow that's going to wave a magic wand over the whole thing. Oh, it's just brilliant. And also, I think it's, it's the, the, one of the characteristics all those films have is it's never about the music because the TV yeah. crews that make them, there's no story in that and they can't evaluate no. that. They don't really know if the music's any good or it isn't any good. They occasionally ask a DJ to tell them or a TV yeah, producer. Yeah. It's just about the business. So the business was painted in this cartoonish way of being full of crooks. Yes. You know, there's a bit where they talk about managers, so the TV producer says, all managers are, he says, are shifty crooks. And uh, one of the bass players says, well, of course, there's, there's a load of... Uh, he's worried about all the gay people in the industry. No, he doesn't. He? No, Mark, 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 let's get this right. Let's get this right. He doesn't say gay people. Because in 1968, nobody said gay people. I think he said queers. He says queers. Yeah, of course, queers. the funny yeah. thing is, queers is now, is now back, back to it's being no, acceptable. No, absolutely. <laughs> Queers is very much a, a, an, an odd there? word, but he's very worried about that sort of you know just uh, uh, shifty men who might be interested in things other other than his brilliant bass playing. You know, so the but it's all the, about the, money too. The manager just says, well, "What I'm aiming for is these guys will be earning three hundred and fifty pounds a night." They interview one of the members of the group. I think it's the drummer. He says, "What do you want out of all?" He says, "He wants to buy a a, a racing car, doesn't he? Isn't that he right? does. a sports and car drive it himself?" Yeah. And one of them. They, they interview uh, the mum and dad of one of the members of the group who are washing dishes yeah. and saying they really hope they'll do well and there's a possibility that they do do well, they might buy them a bungalow. And it's all Absolutely. about success, not about artistic expression the, at all. The, the, the voiceover says, I've got it written down here. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. This is a kind of classic thing that a BBC voiceover on these yeah, kind yeah. of films always says, if it goes well, they could be millionaires by the time yeah. they're 25. What are you talking about? I know. He said it could be yeah. the next challenge to the Beatles. It's all no. that kind of posh voice, isn't it? That's Chumley Warner voice. You think this is absurd? Yeah. Absolutely absurd. So then they reemerge as, as, uh, as you said, Leviathan. Yeah. And uh, the Leviathan, I think, it gets signed to Electra. I don't know if the record actually came out, but anyway. Right. Jack Holtzman of Electra in the United States. Obviously, at the time, looking around the world and looking at his competitors, looking at Armand Hertigan of, uh, of Atlantic Records, who'd gone and signed Led Zeppelin, you know, and thinking, yeah. I, need a, I need a bit of this, you know. So here's a band from Britain called Leviathan. Okay, we'll sign them. Uh, and the person who runs Electra in the UK at the time is Clive Selwood. Yeah. And Clive Selwood is, of course, John Peel's manager. <laughs> so John Peel plays Leviathan on the radio and so or gets him a session or whatever. So consequently, you know, Electra sign, you know, it's it's I wouldn't but it's it's slightly dodgy dealing. It's actually. completely dodgy. <laughs> and and that's the kind of hippie sincere bit of the business. Not the flashy fly by night bit of the of the oh, old. No, they're already accepting the fact that all the managers are complete crooks and looking to exploit them. They have to accept but, that. But I've TV got a companies have no taste, you know. I've got a quote here from the lyrics of, uh, of the song of Leviathan, and they actually do a video, I think. 
And uh, yes, because they appear on the TV program How It Is, don't they? I think. Yeah, they do. And uh, and, and the father lyrics of this song is, "If I could, I would go to Parliament and turn them on to better things." Oh, good God! When they're on, when they're on uh, on the, the TV show, they sing a song. The lyrics to which I think are, uh, "You've got to get out of your head. You've got to step out of your mind." <laughs> and you just think, oh my god! And they they sound a little bit, sound a little bit like the herd, actually, or a little bit like yeah. kind of pop psychedelic uh, who. But uh, they're now what would probably be called psych rock. Yeah, uh, well, so I it's think quite likely that there are a load of psych rock collectors who are actually looking for stuff by. The, this, and that's not an exaggeration, Mark. Yeah. There are, there are. I'm sure so it's like it's like you know it's like the the cocktail twins. Yeah. All these things. Your moment always comes many, many years later. So, yeah, we'll we'll post the link to that. We'll post uh, the link. And it's got that wonderful tone to it that that they all have, which is that if failure is their destiny, it isn't their fault. It's the cloth-eared, you know, isn't it, A&R men. It's 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 the managers. It's the lack of promotion. It's just they've done everything they can. They're perfect, but they just haven't been selected, and it's and. It's a, it's a complete misery. But yeah, we'll put the link on the bottom. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Well, we have a birthday guest slot. Very nice to see him once again. It's Patrick Butler. And Patrick, you have uh, a conversational log to chuck <laughs> on the fire regarding Steely Dan. And what is it? Well, uh, I'm just curious what you guys' thoughts are. But uh, it seems to me uh, in the last few years, and especially this year, it seems, that there's a there's a kind of uh, a renaissance, a resurgence of uh, the popularity of, of 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 Steely Dan, and it just seems like everybody I know who's around my age just absolutely is obsessed with them right now. Um, and I'm just wondering what you guys think is the reason that, that is, because I have my own thoughts. So, oh well, go on. I, I've got one thought which particularly applies from a kind of UK point of view, which may okay. not apply so much in the United States. But I do think one of the reasons that Steely Dan sound still sound fresh and appealing to people now in the UK is, oddly enough, they never really had any hits in the mm. UK. And that had the benefit that since nowadays all radio stations are programmed by computers and computers choose hits, they favour hits. So okay. anybody who had a load of hits... You're sick to death of them. You know, whatever the Eagles hits on Hotel California, Life in the Vast Lane, New Kid in Town, all that stuff. We've heard it a million times over. And I just, I did a bit of research this morning. And, uh, you know, Steely Dan, Mark, they only had one top 20 record in the United Kingdom. Do you know what it was, Mark? It was Ricky Don't Lose That Number? No, it it wasn't. It was Haitian, Haitian Divorce. Got oh, to right, number okay. 17 in 1976. Wow. I, it surprised me. It surprised <laughs> me as well. Just one of those odd things. And so that's the only top 20 record they had in the UK. Hmm. So consequently, they are not, you know, they're, they're not clogging up radio stations' computers and overfeeding you the same stuff all the time. And so when you hear it nowadays, I think it still sounds fresh to a lot of people. What's your theory? My theory. Well, <clears throat> so obviously very different trajectory here in, in the States because they were actually a very, very big band throughout their, their kind of initial run in the 70s, you know, from their first album on 
all of those out. I mean, Ricky Don't Lose That Number was a number one single. Oh, was it really? Run. Yeah. And right up through Gaucho, even the song Hey 19. I mean, those songs, I got to tell you, when I was growing up, I couldn't stand them. I was <laughs> right. sick to death because they were played constantly. I mean, there was about 10 songs essentially that they had yeah. that were just staples of classic rock radio. And a few of the songs then kind of migrated over to like soft rock. So to me, they were very, you know, as a kind of young rock and roller kid and, you know, 17, 18 years old, I just couldn't stand it. I thought it was too slick or it was too produced, you know, and I was just kind of sick of the old kind of boomer rock and roll aspect of them as they started out. I think I got to be honest with you. One thing I think you'll find is, you know, that there's a whole vinyl revival, right? So pretty much a lot of people, I'm in my 40s everyone's kind of getting vinyl records again. Everyone's get, and the albums, Asia, the Royal scam and Katie lied. I think literally every used record shop, antique shop in the United States, you will find a copy of those records in there for 99 cents. And still, really? still, yeah. 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 You know, well, I think a lot of people That's turned them in when they, when they bought CDs, right. They, you know, Hey, I'm yeah, well, my, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and those were big albums. And so I think, I think there's this kind of revival because, you know, particularly Asia and Gaucho are seen as kind of sonic. The pristine way to listen to a vinyl record is those records. And so that became a big, I've know, I know for a fact that in the last couple of years when I was living in New York and stuff, that was a big thing. Oh, let's put on Asia. It's so good. Look at these speakers, you know, all this, (laughs) this is so much better than digital, et cetera. So I, I, I think that first kind of was the part of it. And then the fact that if you, because musically, I think that they are, somewhat you know conventional in some ways you know they, they definitely slot pretty well into you know your your uh your soft rock stations etc but i think lyrically that's the thing that people are really starting to discover so. is that they that there's this incredibly cynical view of the world that i think in some ways kind of fits the times yes yeah, so I, I, I think that's absolutely <laughs> right if you look at songs like um you know uh body sat for only right. a fool would say that kid, kid Charlemagne. You know, they 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 were they were very cynical about not just the right wing but the left wing too. The left wing yes. hippies, they were scrutinising everything, very sceptical. And I think that fits in with an age of disillusionment. And I also yeah. think musically that I think I read something the other day saying that 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 people felt that all the authentic things, the kind of raw, organic things in rock and roll, had been strip mined to death for use in the twenty first century. So the time was for people to go to stuff that was <laughs> verboten. You know, it was to go to the kind of yacht rock and all that. And also the fact that, that at the time, a lot of people, Dave Marsh particularly, I think, was very sceptical about it. and said they Well, were, I think American well, rock critics as, as, yeah. a, as a breed were very down on Steve. They really still were. Are. Said it was utterly pr- of that generation. Are. Of that and generation. I, I, I don't yes. think in Britain the same yeah, thing yeah, didn't yeah. really apply, I don't think. Yeah. No. They were all, I worked in record shops at the time Steely Dan came out, and Steely Dan were super hip amongst people who worked in record shops, mm. as were Little Feet. It was yeah. very, a very different mm. kind of group. They, mm-hmm. they, they, people, they, people who worked in record shops really loved that kind of thing. The thing that's really interesting, I was looking at something yesterday, and I realized I'm really familiar with all the Steely Dan's records. But I don't really know what any of them mean at all. And I've, never, <laughs> I've never been particularly bothered about what they mean. It was only yesterday I was reading something 
that I was informed that only a fool would say that was supposed to be a riposte to John Lennon. Well, I, I, I read that. I, yeah. I never knew that. Yes, it's all and about it, millionaires sort of in their, you know, castles, you know, uh, you know, with all their material possessions. It's fantastic. And I'm not even sure that I want to know, really. I, hmm. know, I know you can't deny that kind of knowledge at all. But, you know, the, the appeal to Steely Dan to me has always been they're like Swiss watches. You know, they're just something immensely satisfying about the way they're put together, mm. you know. And, yeah. and and also, apart from, apart from if you take the very early things like Do It Again, Do It Again was clearly made to be a really big hit record. Mm-hmm. Later on, they, they, they were slightly less obvious about that kind of thing. It struck me, you know, the, mm. the, the hooks weren't, weren't too obvious and so forth. And so that, that kind of helps them in, just endure, isn't yeah. it? And I find that I was <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day. You know, it was not a playlist on Spotify for things you things to play when you can't decide what to play. And at the top of that list would be Steely Dan. <laughs> I, I find you know, if I can't decide what to play, play a Steely Dan record. It'll be fine. <laughs> Something will just come to the surface. Some track that you've never particularly liked in the past, you'll find yourself really drawn to. It's Did just, you read you know, that thing about Judd Apatow? I thought it was really interesting. Really interesting. He made the the, the, the film Knocked Up, and uh, yeah, it, he's a huge Steely Dan fan. But oh, didn't yeah. want to admit it, and the character played. I can't remember his name. It came by by Paul Rudd in the film. Yeah. Says at one point something like, uh, uh, "If you catch me listening to Steely Dan, slice my head off yes. with an Al Jarreau record." <laughs> I thought that is really funny because there's somebody who absolutely adored them, using using them as to, as, a, as a kind of benchmark for awfulness in this film. You know? Well, I think if, if you're a youngerish person, you know, I don't know that I I I don't think at 16, even 26, even early 30s, I would have liked yeah. it because I think it was too adult. You know, All that's right. the thing, right? You're not cynical necessarily, hopefully. I mean, when you're when you're yeah. kind of younger. And um, you know, again, like growing up in a in a more kind of like like you said, like the Dave Moshes, that kind of point of view was was like very prevalent when I was a kid. And it was like yeah. authentic, you know, that's why they all championed Springsteen, right? Yeah. yeah. And because it's like this is the working class, and really they're motivated by politics, I think, a lot of times. And and Steely Dan is, of course, like all politics is stupid. These people are all awful, you know, and that's that really bumps against their worldview. So they always kind of denigrated it. And then, of course, you know, it doesn't some of it does, but a lot of it doesn't really rock. You know, it's very jazzy. It's yeah. it's almost like cocktail lounge music, you know. Absolutely. And, and I think so, you know, it's 17, 18 years old. That that's a real turnoff. And whereas when you get a little bit older and you don't want to listen to, you know, Minor threat, you know. This is like something that you, can, <laughs> but also that, you, know, you that, put on, and everyone kind of likes, you know. So uh, that music seemed to represent precisely the opposite of of what rock critics thought yes. rock music's core values were, you know. Correct. Particularly in the in the, in the kind of indie rock era, you know, that whole eighties nineties mm-hmm. thing, they were just considered to be absolutely anathema. And my feeling is that anybody who's hated that much will inevitably it'll Become. swing the other way. <laughs> they will just uh, come back. They're bound to. You know? I tell you what, though, it's funny you should mention knocked up. Because I was only watching it the other oh, night. Oh yeah. Because I was I was uh, directed to it once again because I was playing Loudon Wainwright's <laughs> terrific album of music for Knocked Up, mm-hmm. oh, Ray yeah, in yeah. L.A. and all. It was such a good record. That's my daughter in the water and all that. Such <laughs> a good record. That's a brilliant record. And I was playing it. And I thought, Do you know, I must watch Knocked Up again. And it was on Amazon Prime. And I watched it the other night, and it is ridiculously dated. 
just yes. ridiculously dated. Yes. It's yeah. not even that old, and it's preposterously dated. Steely Dan, 50 years old, oh, I know. not remotely yeah, yeah. dated. Yeah. It's, it's just a really odd thing, isn't it, how that mm-hmm. works, you know. So yeah. if you were going to buy shares in anything, you know, <laughs> back in 1973, buy them in Steely Dan. Because <laughs> they'll still be uh, being streamed and so forth, you know, uh, after we're all long gone, I would imagine, you know. It seems and, that way. And also there's a lot to be said for the fact that they were really kind of anonymous. Yes. And, and sort of physically unprepossessing. Yeah, yeah, you didn't know anything about them. There were no posters on anybody's wall. You couldn't couldn't fall out with them. They didn't have a kind of David Lee Roth figure out the front or anything like that. That's right. Anybody was a bit flash, you know. Yeah, yeah. They were were no threat to you, were they, Steely Dan? You weren't weren't envying them anything apart from their their immense skill, I suppose, you know. Um, So, well, I still get a great deal from them um, nowadays, and uh, and I'm glad to hear that you do. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm obsessed. I'm sure sure lots of other people share your obsession. Mm -hmm. So thanks for uh, that contribution, Patrick. And uh, when was the birthday? Uh, my birthday is the 3rd of July, so the day before oh. the 4th. Oh, okay. Oh, right. oh well, okay. that, that always, probably... always a good time. <laughs> good day, just to get <laughs> the party started early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Word Podcast. Clearly, there is no plan. We're joined by another valued Patreon birthday boy, Alan Williams. Hello, Alan. When was the birthday? It was the Tuesday before last. Right, right. And uh, we've spoken to you in the past, and I think one of your one of your no doubt many claims to fame was you you were sent out to collect pretty much all the album sleeves of hypnosis. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So we went through a few last time. Um, yeah, I think it was about three hundred and seventy-two of the sort of official hypnosis ones. Oh my god! And How many have you got? I'm eight away from halfway now. Oh, good God, that's incredible. This is like banging Munro's. This is it really <laughs> is. It really is. I assume you've seen the movie. Have you seen the movie? That's I haven't I'm waiting for it to come to the cinema near me, so I think it's on in Walsall, so I might go and see that soon. Right. What was your most recent hypnosis acquisition? Well, the most recent, I went back to the, the Chesterfield um, Record Fair, which was... Um, that was oh, right. Fine. Oh, so this... It was a sampler album. Yeah, though, it's a it? charisma um, compilation and reading Poe's book. It's one they're not very proud of, really. Right. No, I'm sure. Yeah. Is this in vision? Because that is a, is, a, is a rather dubious and rather sadistic mask, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think they had it made specially from what I read. Oh, it, yeah. oh yeah. in the days before. Oh, happy days. <laughs> got a bit of Genesis on it, the nice and things like that. So that was that was the last, last one I got. What's your personal favourite of the ones you've got? Oh, well, there's quite a few. I, mean, I think last time we spoke, I, I said it was after the ones by Flash, and I managed to get... Oh, there you go. Actually, nice. Someone in America who was selling this signed copy, signed by Tony Kay, who was, who was in Flash after... So Tony Kay was a former keyboard player of Yes, wasn't yeah. he? And when he left, he thought he, he was in Flash. Yeah, so I got, I got that one shipped across from the States... Is that on there? There wasn't a harvest label. I think it probably was, wasn't it? Couldn't it? Be, couldn't it? I think it was. I think it was. I'm not sure. Did you get Thunderbox by Humble Pie? Have you got the Trees album? No, this, this is on Capital Sovereign, actually. Oh, right. Okay. Well, that's obviously the American. Yeah, no, I've not got Thunderbox yet, but I keep looking and 
they, they keep popping up in record shops. And right. Toe fat. Have you got the toe fat? Oh, no, I've got that on CD. I've not found that. That's quite oh, a, a nightmare. Those. So some of them yeah. are a bit of a, a premium, really. So, uh, yeah, so I'm keeping, keeping collecting those, and it's keeping me entertained at the weekend good good so alan it's traditional for for our birthday uh, patreon friends to throw a log on the conversational fire of the podcast or ask a question or what a, what do you want to do well i was, I was going to talk a bit about peter gabriel because it's been a, a bit of a big year for peter gabriel fans so uh, there was some some story about you not being able to go to a gig or a gig was cancelled and he did something particularly uh particularly uh, 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 kind and sympathetic. Yeah, he did, right? yeah. Come to that in a moment. I'll just summarise my sort of love for Peter Gable. If, yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, so I started off with Sledgehammer. That was the first one right. yeah. I bought. And I was kind of getting into Genesis at the same time, but uh, Peter's music really grabbed me and uh, obviously bought, bought So, which right. is, you know, a great album. Um, and at the time... I also bought this this book, which had just come out. It's by a guy called Armando Gallo. Oh, yes, he used to write yeah. like all the yeah, Genesis he's, books. He's a bit of Genesis and that. Yeah. And, and really, that was where I learned everything I sort of knew about Peter Gable in those early days. And there's an interesting little quote in this book where he's talking about the time it takes him to make music and describes himself as being part of the tortoise movement. Right. He was renowned a bit for, for being slow even then. But if, if you look at things, I mean, So only came out three years after his previous album, which sounds like a long time then. But as time goes on, it's been a, a bit of a slower wait for Peter Gabriel albums. Uh, just before we leave So, I was really into the videos. I, met, I found these, which was basically some photos I took off the, off the telly with a camera of the, um, I think that's the big time video. And that's uh, Sledgehammer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got my brother. What a fantastic video that was. Yeah, I got my brother to dig dig something out. This he took a photo of it. This is an old VHS bootleg we bought, but it just came in a plain box. I actually made this sort of cover from one of those photos, probably from a bit from an advert cut out of Smash Hits, and printed up on an old computer. So. That was a, a ropey VHS. God, would he have advertised in Smash Hits? I suppose he would. He probably yeah, would. Probably, yeah, probably not would. his core market, but that's how you sold singles. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was so. And then I think it was six years before the next one, Us, came out, which did seem a long wait. And then it, it was another 10 years until Up came out, which is really his last um, proper studio album. You know, there's been a few soundtracks and things. Yeah. But I, I remember this one because this was just around the time my uh, my daughter was born. So I've always kind of measured the time since the last Peter Gabriel as she's grown up. And she's she's a second-year medical student now. So oh, there you go. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, gonna say, are you going to say she's retired? Uh, <laughs> it's a long time. So, yeah, back in November, Peter announced he was uh, going to tour. I bought a ticket for uh, Nottingham uh, with the tour being in June. But then what he's also been doing is something called the Full Moon Club, which he's he's done a few times before where every full moon he releases some piece of music. And it used to be stuff from his archive, but he started in uh, January releasing new tracks from his his album. Um, and I've quite enjoyed that, really, because I've, I've almost been making a mental note when the full moon is. And there's a couple of times when I've, I've got up in the middle of the night to go to the loo, as you do it. 
my age and uh, I thought I could knit down and listen to that new Peter Gabriel track so it's been quite exciting really it's it's almost been a bit <laughs> this is fantastic that, that's yeah. the most uh, uh, that's the most old rock old I was going to say it's the most middle aged thing it really is <laughs> you know what what alleviates that trip to the loo well great Peter Gabriel's <laughs> put a record he, he himself is probably on his way to relieve himself too <laughs> that's a lovely idea oh yeah, it's great uh, I found that quite exciting. It's almost been like hearing songs on the radio for the first time, like it used to be. In the so they're of... literally available. You could just, they're streaming at the moment the moon becomes full. I mean, how does that work? Yeah, on that day, from, from midnight on that day, they've been available. So Streaming uh, is a strange word to use here, but anyway, go on, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I quite enjoyed it. It's been quite exciting. So I was kind of expecting he'd, he'd do two or three and then the album would come out, but we had one in, in February and March and then April and no news of an album. And then in May, the tour started and, and still no album. So it's been a bit strange, really. He's, he's gone out on tour with a, a lot of new songs, but the album hasn't appeared yet. And uh, it's, it's been a bit unusual. So anyway, I'm getting, getting quite excited about seeing on tour. I've seen the odd little post on Twitter, but I'm trying to avoid spoilers. And then with less than a week to go, suddenly a, a message appears saying the Nottingham show has been cancelled due to logistics. I'm not really sure what, what the problem was. Uh, so I was a bit, a bit upset about that initially, but then I read on and it says uh, there are still tickets available for some other shows and you'll get your money back for Nottingham, but if you, we'll send you a link and if you book through that, uh, you can come to the sound check and we'll give you a bit of free merchandise. Very good. So fortunately, I was able to rebook for Birmingham. It's not too far. And then I get, uh, get a bit of information to say turn up at, at half three at the... Uh, whatever the arena's called in Birmingham now, I can remember. NEC, it used to be. Anyway. Yeah, well, no, this one the NEC. This is the one in the centre of town. Oh, I see, yeah, okay, right. The, right. the convention centre or whatever. Um, so turn up, and there's probably about 40 people there. Uh, we get let in just be- before four, uh, go up to a little merch stand and get given a, a, a nice Peter Gable bag, right? Uh, coffee of the programme. And also a T-shirt. So that's, I totted up when I looked at the merchandise store, that's £55 worth of free stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, Very uh, nice. And then we get led into, you know, basically an empty arena from the far end, which is quite a fascinating experience to go into when it's so quiet. You can hear a bit of tinkling on the piano going on from the far end. And it's all set up. The show's already on, all the stage is set. And, and Peter and the band are there. And he kind of welcomes us. He apologises to the... The people like me from Nottingham who've who've rebooked and they played about three or four songs for us. That's really good. It's really nice. And he, he played. He said the first one he played. He said we've not knocked this out of the main set, but we'll play this one anyway. And they did a couple of others. And then the cellist was keen to do a bit of rehearsal, so she um, she suggested a song, and they played a little bit of "Don't Give Up." Uh, so it was a really nice experience, and I. I, I found it quite emotional in a way because I've you know I've been a fan for so long and Birmingham's where I kind of came as a student and it was at the height of my sort of fandom of Peter's music and I was kind of thinking you know that the eighteen year old me would would be so amazed that a Peter Gable's still going and and to have had that experience yeah absolutely have you ever met him I've never met him no no that's would you, do you want to or is that something that's just too I much I don't know I mean he's you know through that twenty year period waiting for the next album you, you see him tweeting. He, he says this himself, he gets so enthralled in all sorts of other things 
you know, I think he's into AI at the moment. He does a lot of humanitarian stuff. But I, I see these tweets and I sort of just, you know, bark back at them. Don't don't retweet them. Just say, please make an album. Just make a record. You know. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So, but it's uh, yeah, it was, that, that was a great experience. Um, and I went out and had a had a beer and, and some tea, and then came back in for the the main concert. And that that was good. Yeah, it was a good show. But he played, you, I think, a total of eleven new songs. So that's a bit of a a gamble when you're, um, you know, that you haven't released the album. But they did seem to go down well. Really, there wasn't much dissent, uh, and people seemed happy. It, it was a little odd at half time. I went out and had a coffee and then they were announcing the show will start again in five minutes. I thought I'll wander back in and it already started. It was a bit weird, really. So uh, They can't afford to muck about nowadays, can they? You can't afford yeah. to, to to breach the curfew and so yeah. forth. Things start on time and they finish on time, don't they? Well, yeah. I'm glad to hear that it uh, your Nottingham cancellation uh, turned out happily. Yeah. Actually, actually, it's better. It's it better because yeah. yeah. you've got a story to tell. Absolutely. That's the important yeah. Gigs are ten a penny. Stories yeah. are, you know. They, pray they, for they, your they, next gig to be cancelled. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, I'm fascinated about the moonlight. That's brilliant. People garden by moonlight, but I've not heard of people, you know, I mean, they plant at moonlight, but I've not heard of people releasing songs by moonlight. That's fantastic. Yeah. Did, you also, did you also have an album you wanted to plug? I was going to, yeah, I was going to plug this one, which is an album... Uh, by a guy called Martin Greck, and this came out, ooh, I don't know, probably about 20 years ago. I picked up on it because Howard Jones, who I'm a fan of, he was the executive producer, but that, that's really all he did. He didn't do any playing on it. But it, I think Martin Greck was about 17 when he made this album, and it, it essentially seems to me as, as though it's it's what happens when a 17-year-old hears um, OK, by, OK Computer by Radiohead and sort of locks themselves away in their bedroom and makes... Oh God. An album. It's it's just really fantastic. It's it had one song that was nearly a hit. It was in a uh, a Toyota advert, but it's just got a real sort of intensity and um, something about it that I've not really heard much before. And I thought I thought he was going to be a really big star. I did see him live around the time of this album, and his live performance was was uh, say really intense I kind of it was almost like watching Ian Curtis or someone like that I've seen a few films of him and it just had that sort of intensity but it just didn't quite make it and he's made a couple of other albums but but Open Heart Zoo is just a fantastic so Open Heart Zoo by Martin Martin Greck G-R-E-C-H we'll make make a note of that thanks for for recommending that Alan and thanks for joining us uh, on the week of your birthday Yeah. See you next time. The Word Podcast. What's wrong with being sexy? Just before we go, I I sent you, I think, a link to um, Noel Gallagher uh, video for um, a track off his his new record, which I thought was rather funny because (laughs) when I was writing my book about Abbey Road, I was in Abbey Road one one day last last May, so it's kind of more than a year ago. And um, and I spoke to Noel Gallagher, who was in there. And he was in there putting strings on that song, you know, in well, studio. Well, that very song, that, the very song yeah, that's on that clip, and, which on, I think is called Open the Door, Seeming well, they Fire. Put, they, whatever, they're yeah. putting strings on three songs, I think, from that album. And he made the album in his home studio, I think, mainly. Yeah. But he'd gone in there to do the strings. 
he said, you know, because if you, I don't care what anybody says, he says, if you record strings in Studio 2, it sounds like the Beatles, you know. It's fair, it's fair enough. Yeah. It's partly, partly sentimental, you know, all sorts of things. Anyway, there they were in Studio 2. And I said, so when's this coming out? So this is May. When's this coming out? I said, is it coming out, you know, pre-Christmas, kind of autumn? He said, no, it'll come out next year sometime. And I just... I just thought, that's extraordinary. That is such a change in the nature of popular music. You know, the pop music used to be done in the spirit of, this is going to be in front of the public in a month's time. You know what I mean? Well, the Ballad of John and Yoko. Yeah, recorded well, on they, Tuesday, uh, released on Saturday. Yeah. yeah. But even, even later than that, you know, things were going, going to be, they were going to, they were going to go into the same world from which they were created. Yeah, kind of thing, because they'd be turned around really quickly. Now they're not at all anymore, are they? It seems that records, records are turned around more slowly than movies nowadays. And now you think, why? What's the why? Well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you for why, because it's just drunk me. It's all about tours. Because the tour is the key thing. The record is just the thing that you'd like to have timed for the tour. Yeah. So there's no point putting the record out if you're not touring. Yeah. The tour takes ages to set up, and it's probably for the summer doing lead festivals or or whatever. That's how, you know, bigger acts tour. Therefore, the record has to wait until you're touring to get put out there. Yeah. But the other thing that struck me as really funny is this video is shot in Studio One, studio at one with an orchestra. With an orchestra. And so they've had to reassemble all those people a year later to pretend to do a thing that they once actually did. Well, wouldn't they have shot the video at the time? They would have done, surely. No, no, no. They've done it all later. They must have done Because they weren't in Studio that gonna One. Cost? What's that going to cost? Because to pay someone to mime is what you pay them to play. I mean, they're just, you know, it's the same money, isn't it? Oh, my God, it's unbelievable. It is. It's, it kind of makes no sense to me. No sense. Anyway, viewers, listeners, if you happen to know the name of the pop video on which Mark Allen is featured pretending to play the saxophone, <laughs> please get in touch. <laughs> Please or not. It's there. <laughs> it's, it's out there out, on YouTube. Oh, it's really. out there, ladies and gentlemen. And you know, we'll uh, special special mention for anybody who manages to identify <laughs> it. Good luck. We'll we'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.